0: This episode of the Radio DePaul Podcast is brought to you by Hakabakakati rolls bringing Indian street food to your dinner plate and by snarf sandwiches, handcrafted, oven toasted, ridiculously addictive. Let's start the show. Hello, everybody. Happy spring and welcome back to the Radio to Paul podcast. It's great to be back. I'm Derek Peters. We had a very meta cold open this week. We gave you noise because that's, in a sense, what we're going to be talking about today. The metaphorical noise. We're going to be talking about ways that people are cutting through that noise and bringing things to attention Hannah Hoffman's going to kick us off this week with a story about how one reissue record label is bringing forgotten artists back to prominence.
1: For decades, only the most passionate of crate-diggers had the ability to own some of the world's most obscure and seemingly left-behind records. Reissue record labels from Seattle's Light in the Attic to Chicago's own Numero Group continue to present another option for fans interested in discovering these discarded treasures within a curated format. Equal parts historian and fan Ken Shipley of Numero Group is always on the lookout for that next great tracker sound time has overlooked.
2: What I'm interested in doing is doing a, a license for a compilation of exotic um, music recorded in the 50s and really try to tell your story because you know, I, I think a lot of this music is, is on the verge of being completely lost permanently.
1: When I meet Mr. Shipley, he is on the phone trying to secure licensing to a track for an upcoming Numero release on Exotica.
2: There's a, a massive kind of... Growing number of people who are starting to become interested in this type of thing again, myself included. I'm probably 40 years younger than you, um, but, but I, I, I find this, this stuff to be really fascinating. Uh, the vocals are completely haunting.
1: Since forming the label in 2003, Shipley and business partner Rob Severe have released over 300 albums, including series based compilations like Wayfaring Stranger and Eccentric Soul. Recently, Numero issued a box set on Orc Records, a 1970s New York punk rock label featuring artists like Richard Hell, Lester Bangs, and Alex Chilton. For this year's Record Store Day, the label is specially releasing a cassette from 90s Chicago rap trio Stony Island.
2: What, what we do, and we... Primarily deal with failure here. People who never made anything, uh, you know, made, they, they make very little money um, and for the most part have completely forgotten about their recording career. It runs from A all the way to Z. There's a lot of stops along the way, and, and there's visionaries, don't get me wrong, who can say like A to Z, I know exactly what I want my sound and my vision to be. But a lot of people really need help when they get to like H, you know, and figuring out what those next steps So You can go all the way to the end, and that's where I came in. And that's what I do here. It's like you know the artists that we find are already at H, you know, but they need somebody who can bring them to M, and then you know that's and then then the rest of the people here help take it from M to Z.
1: So um, Numero's mission is stated simply on their website. To quote part of this credo: "Find the dustiest gems begging to be released from their exile on Geek Street." So you have to be a pretty big music fan to want to start a reissue, it. Yeah, I mean,
2: I mean, I started collecting records really young, but um, I don't think you have to be a fan of of like a specific genre, or you have to be terribly knowledgeable about one thing or another. You really have to have more like a thirst for information, a passion for knowledge, and the want to to discover more than like you know, like it, for example, like. At the beginning of this year, I didn't really care about exotica. It wasn't a genre that I ever really listened to. But then I found a couple of things that I liked, and I started piecing together a record that I thought would be kind of fascinating. And from there, it just kind of grew and built, and now it's going to be a box set. And in there is, you know, that that's where the fascination is. The fascination is looking at those recordings and saying like i never like this music it's not about being a fan of exotica it's about being a fan of information and a fan of discovery like i get my rocks off on finding people like you know when i turn up somebody who's nobody's ever talked to before that's that's the best that's the best moment it's like finding them connecting them with the you know the idea that Their music is actually important and then proving it by making a record and then proving it again by having that record be used in a film or TV show or a commercial or, you know, being sampled on a, you know, on a hip hop song or, you know, or just even giving them a royalty statement that's for like $100. And it's like, you know, there's there's a value in that.
1: So I had to ask, with so much music in the world and the vast genres present throughout Numero's releases, how does Shipley begin his process?
2: Every record really begins with a great concept, you know, whether it's a studio or a label or a scene or a producer or a sound that maybe, you know, maybe the things aren't connected to, but other, but they're connected by, you know, like a, an overarching sort of vision, um, you know, or a fascination, a cultural fascination, like Kid Soul. Um, all those things, you know, are, are what we look for when we start making a record. You know, like, there's plenty of great tracks, and anybody can reissue a record, anybody can make a record, uh, but finding a way to present that is really what we specialize in. You know, like, the, the, what we did with Ultra Fre- High Frequency is just to, I mean, that record was born of a, um, a bunch of video cassettes that we found for a show called the Chicago Party, and being able to say, hey, what if we could do a soundtrack for this based on the artists who performed on the Chicago Party and you know, that, 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 you know, that, that creates like a latticework from which you can build upon, right, so it's like you know that the Chicago Party is this and then all the artists become the vines that connect that whole thing together.
1: The 1980s saw the rise of the home taping is killing music campaign. As more reissue labels gain prominence in mainstream media, Shipley created a similar campaign. But instead of home taping killing music, it's home reissuing.
2: Because what's happening right now is that there's so many reissue labels at every juncture. And it's like everybody feels like they can get $2,000 together, call the pressing plant, find a record that they want to do, and then all of a sudden it's just really easy. But what ends up happening is it creates a market glut. And that market glut becomes, you know, Maybe one year it's only like 200 extra things in the market. But those 200 extra things then, you know, it's like all those things cannot all be bought. And so the quality stuff sometimes gets obscured by the number of like just pieces of garbage you've got you've got so many records flooding the marketplace at one time not only from independent stuff but from major label sources that you know like it's hard for the consumer to really know what's great and you know we're in a really lucky position because we've been doing this for 13 years now and we've established a brand that people know and they're like look oh that's a numeral record it's a new uh, you know I, I believe that it will be of a quality uh, but you know that doesn't mean that there's not you know, more people, there's always somebody who wants to be the next numero or the next light in the attic or the next rhino or whatever it is. And it just takes a lot of years and it's harder than ever because of that market glut. And it's really easy to dismiss a lot of things because of that market
1: glut. It's these stories of missed opportunities and lack of success that draws Shipley to create these releases and seek out the talent that has always been around, just not properly showcased.
2: The story of success is really boring to me. Like People who made it and made a lot of money and then all their stories about how they spent their money, whereas people who never made anything tend to tell you stories about how all they were trying to do was just like get over. And, you know, like, and that, that creates a fascinating construct, right, of, of, of people like, that they're doing things that are illegal, people doing things that, you know, that they wouldn't normally do because they're desperate. And, and all those things just tend to generate, I don't know, a greater narrative um, from which you can build a great story around.
0: as always to Hannah Hawkins. What we're going to play for you next is a segment of an interview I gave to my friend and roommate Stephen Shaltiel. He was writing a piece about how millennials view politics and sort of the millennial slant on this year's election cycle. And so we got to doing the interview and well, we got to talking about how Media saturation has influenced the um, opinions and the political discourse of young people. Now, obviously, what you're going to hear is my personal viewpoint on it. It is not necessarily the correct viewpoint on it. It's just what I tend to think from where I'm sitting. If you see things differently, you're more than welcome to do so. Just wanted to give that little disclaimer out ahead of it. Um, Also, we... The audio was not meant recorded for the purposes of broadcast. He was recording it for his own notes to transcribe for the piece that he was writing. So the audio is a little bit... um, It's got some character to it. Uh, Serial is not the only podcast that can use audio not recorded for broadcast. We're proving that here today. So enough disclaimers. Here we go. Let's play the segment.
3: So you have a completely... I guess, raw perspective when it comes to this, because you are libertarian, you don't you don't affiliate with one of the major parties. When you look at millennial support, Mm -hmm. um, our generation, they overwhelmingly support Donald Trump on the Republican side and Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. Yeah. What do you, what do you make of that? Because it's it's such a, uh, well, I mean, at least on the Democratic side, there's such a, um, a contrast with the with the rest of the uh, the electorate. Um, what what do you make of those two candidates and, and their success among millennials, and and how do you think that they are uh, directly related with one another? Well,
0: it's I mean the easiest way to say that they're related is just that they're both really angry, uh, and I I think that that ties into why they have such large support among millennials because uh, our. People not not all millennial is a very big term so you know I guess some people that are like close to thirty are technically millennials by right. some definition but I I think of millennials more as like people yeah ju- ju- just our
3: within age. college age you yeah know, the, the relationship with people that you have to Paul at the right you know what what have you um... so so
0: I mean people that are around our age grew up mostly in a post 9 11 world um, where the government is, in large part, not trusted. Um, and I think that that ties into this kind of prevailing notion that things are broken politically. And I, there's um, there's a, a, a British docu- documentary maker, I, I don't know his name offhand, um, but he coined this term called dearism to describe the media landscape. And I think that millennials, we've grown up in a 24-7, you know, 24-7 news networks are on all the time, and they're an accepted thing. And now it's even more so with the Internet. Things are being posted all of the time, um, and we get wildly different perspectives depending on the biases of, whoever's posting that news or reading that news and the the whole idea of oh dearism is that things appear to be so complicated that rather than trying to dive in and understand the nuance of them the only logical reaction is to say oh dear things are bad um, and I think that there's a lot of that that I notice among younger people is just that the the barriers to entry um, in political discussions now, with all of the different media sources and all of this discussion of like who's biased, who's not biased, who's less biased, um, it's really hard for somebody who's just kind of like, you know casually invested in politics to enter into any kind of political discussion. And so when somebody like Bernie Sanders or somebody like Donald Trump comes along who says, the system as we know it is so complicated and broken, I'm angry about it like you're angry about it, and here's a very simple way to fix it, I think that that's very attractive to
3: millennials. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a very in-depth answer. (laughs) the piece is like 8,000 words. Did, have you ever, did you ever give Ricochet a try, by the way? Because I was, I was telling you about it. you, you, you got to check it out. Listened. They released an episode yesterday with uh, the former governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, who's actually the president of Purdue now. And his explanation for... less so for Donald Trump and more so for Bernie Sanders, and, the, and why the electorate is suddenly embracing socialism again, is because every year... More and more people are entering the electorate who didn't even grow up during the Cold War. They were born after the Cold War. Yeah. And the the they didn't see socialism in the news. They had, they you know they they didn't experience that um, that discussion really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, I think that there's definitely some truth to that because people for people of our
0: generation the only real the only way we would know about the tangible fallout from socialism is in history classes mm-hmm. yet most of the time in my history classes at least we sort of start if it's american history we kind of start at A certain we start with Columbus, Mm -hmm. and then throughout the year we kind of progress. And I remember always rushing at the end of the year to get through. Yeah, I mean, it it almost it felt
3: like the Cold War War wasn't didn't happen long ago enough to talk about in history, but it wasn't close enough to talk about in like current events. kinda in the middle. Yeah, it was kind of like a thing that happened that we had heard about, Mm. um,
0: but we didn't necessarily understand. Thanks to Stephen Schaltiel for conducting that interview. We're going to wrap things up this week by hearing a little bit from experimental poet Christian Book. Christian has been working on a project for over 10 years now called the Xeno Text, which is a mixture of poetry and biology that's working together to form, hopefully, an artistic expression that will cut through the noise throughout time. It's actually um, if it's successful, will outlive all of terrestrial civilization and after the whole world has has evolved and gone quiet, after all of us are extinct, the idea is that this project will continue and that there will be poetry out there. I'm going to let Christian take it from here.
4: The Xenotext is a project uh, that is still ongoing. I've been working on it now for the better part of 15 years, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to bring it to conclusion uh, soon. Uh, It requires that I write two very short poems, uh, uh, two very short little sonnets, uh, the first of which uh, I translate into uh, a sequence of genetic nucleotides. Through a process of encipherment, I translate this poem into a gene sequence, and then with the assistance of a laboratory, I build that gene in the lab and then implant it into a bacterium, replacing part of its genetic code with my poem so that the organism becomes the living embodiment of my text. Moreover, I've written this poem in such a way that the organism can actually read the gene sequence, and in response, It interprets it as a set of instructions for building a sequence of amino acids, uh, for building a strand of protein. And it just so happens that I've written the poem in such a way that the strand of protein that it produces is an encipherment for yet another completely different poem, the second poem uh, that I've written. In effect, I'm engineering a bacterium so that it becomes not only an archive for storing my poem, it becomes a machine for writing a poem in response and places me in direct dialogue with the organism. And the punchline to this crazy project is that the selected host for my poem is in fact a a bacterium called Deinococcus radiodurans, an extremophile capable of surviving in all kinds of hostile environments. You can scorch it, freeze it, wither it, and it does not die. It can survive in the open vacuum of outer space. It can repair its DNA so quickly that it does not mutate or evolve very easily. Moreover, uh, uh, it can survive 1,000 times the dosage of gamma radiation that might instantly obliterate a human being. It is widely regarded as one of the most unkillable organisms ever to have evolved on the face of the planet Earth. And even now, we do not know really what its natural habitat might be and uh, how its uh, evolution has been driven uh, to acquire all of these survivable traits by putting my poem into this organism, I might be effectively writing a book that could outlast terrestrial civilization and persist on the planet Earth until the very moment when the sun explodes. I am, in fact, trying to write a book that is capable of lasting forever. That's so it.
3: I'm, uh, that,
4: that's, that's what I'm trying to do at the limit cases of linguistic investigation. That's why I'm an experimental poet. You know, I, I have to do experiments. I end up really in laboratories, you know, behaving like a scientist.
0: Right. Well, and the um, kind of desire for a writer to have their work be eternal and, and last through the ages is certainly not a not a new impulse, but I think that it's safe to say you know if this project uh, succeeds in the way that uh, that you're imagining then I think you will have um, the other writers beat uh, in that regard in terms of of living on
4: sure and you know part of the intention for doing this project is uh, to Uh, Present myself as uh, a 21st century poet trying to respond to the uh, sociological and technological circumstances of my era. And of course, we all pay lip service to the immortality of art, but few of us, I think, really imagine how we might um, ensconce uh, our cultural legacy in something truly enduring. Uh, As it stands right now, there there are only uh, three uh, cultural legacies that might persist on the planet Earth. Uh, into uh, the future several hundreds of millions of years. Everything that we've built so far today would in fact just be ground down into uh, a barely detectable layer of uh, geological dust. Uh, but so we have three legacies that will be persisting on our planet if we were to disappear tomorrow. And they would include uh, the background radiation from our nuclear waste, uh, the uh, fossilization of all of the extinct species that are currently being rendered extinct because of our presence upon the planet, And finally, uh, the uh, effects of climate change preserved in the environmental record of the ice cores and uh, fossil record, geological record. Uh, Those don't seem to me very great uh, legacies uh, (laughs) to testify to our cultural heritage upon the planet, three forms effectively of pollution that uh, showcase uh, our poor ability to be custodians of the planet. So uh, I think that it's incumbent upon us to uh, produce uh, uh, lasting uh, legacies that in fact testify to our best achievements and permit us perhaps to reconstitute our culture in the face of some planetary disaster, uh, perhaps nuclear warfare or meteoric impact, something that would permit us, uh, you know, that would you know, effectively destroy our civilization and require that it be reconstituted uh, from scratch. How might we preserve our legacy into the future in the face of cosmic threat?
0: Now, have you written the poem that you're looking to implant in in the uh, genome already?
4: Yes, I have have the uh, poems uh, uh, already written. It took me four years to write these two poems. Uh, They're written according to some very arduous biochemical constraints that make it very difficult to uh, express anything remotely meaningful. And the two poems uh, are in dialogue with each other. They speak to each other. Uh, the one that I've written, uh, I've nicknamed Orpheus, and the one that the organism writes in response, I've nicknamed Eurydice. And uh, my poem is a, a kind of masculine assertion about the artistic creation of life. And the organism responds um, in the voice of Eurydice, saying uh, with, a, with a poem that is, in fact, a kind of uh, woe-begone uh, elegy about the absence of life and the loss of life. No, they function.
0: Sorry, go ahead. I would say they
4: function within Yeah, sure. They function within the pastoral tradition of the herd boy addressing the nymphette and being rebuffed. And I think that they speak uh, in a very fragile way about um, uh, uh, how we've interacted with nature and the degree to which uh, we can command uh, our own fate and uh, you know control uh, the actual ability of life to uh, evolve and change.
0: Now, now, will these two poems? Exist sort of be regenerated um, over and over again in these organisms, or is the idea that the organisms will reshuffle the the code in such a way as to produce um, new new poems down through the generations of this bacteria?
4: Uh, the the poems are written uh, so that the organism will actually uh, preserve them. It's, okay, uh, it store, it stores my poem in its genome. And in response, it continues to write a poem. And in fact, that, that, what I've done is hijacked its function so that becomes one of its jaws to uh, write this poem Eurydice over and over again in response to the poem that is ensconced in its genome. Uh, the uh, organism uh, that I've selected is uh, a very uh, sturdy repository for these two poems. Uh, it doesn't evolve very easily. It doesn't mutate very easily. So the poems themselves are uh, likely to endure uh, but of course, unless the protein that is created, uh, adds some benefit to the organism, uh, it is unlikely to, um, uh, persist in doing so. I mean, evolution does, in fact, begin to uh, exert its influence over the organism. And I think eventually the, the poem itself will begin to mutate and change, uh, on its own over, uh, over time. But it will endure, uh, for a very prolonged time. Memorably within this organism without being altered. Uh, It's um, a very durable archive for storing a work of art.
0: And my thanks to Christian Book. For speaking with me about that project, he's going to be discussing that project more in depth at a DePaul Humanities Center event this coming Thursday. That's April 21st from 7 to 9 in Student Center Room 120 AB. That event is free and open to the public. If you'd like to hear more about Christian Books Xenotext Experiment, I highly encourage all of you to come on out to that event. If you can't make it here to Lincoln Park, but you'd still like to listen in. We are going to bring that event to you live on Radio DePaul. That's going to do it for us this week on the show. My thanks, of course, to everybody who was able to contribute some segments to our discussion, our discourse here today. And we've got a very exciting show coming up next week, a Game of Thrones themed episode. So that will be very exciting. Winter is coming, my friends. Winter is coming. Until then you can tune in to Radio DePaul at radio.depaul.edu you can turn it you can tune in to Radio DePaul Sports at radiodepaulsports.com, or if you want to kill two birds with one stone you can listen to either of them on the Radio DePaul app available for Apple and Android devices. We'll be back next week, as I said, with that Game of Thrones-themed episode to bring you more of the best bits from Radio DePaul, Chicago's College Connection. If you're feeling so hungry, you could eat an elephant. Snarfs has the best ingredients for sandwiches most elegant. Choose your favorite sandwich or perhaps a salad or a soup. They'll pop it in the oven and when it's ready, give a whoop. Your taste buds will cheer. Your tummy will rejoice because you went to Snarfs. You made the right choice. Need to feed an army or running short on time? Snarfs caters and delivers. You can even order online. Craving something Snarfalicious? Visit Snarf Sandwiches at 955 West Webster Avenue. Show your DePaul ID and receive free chips and a fountain drink with a purchase of a sandwich or salad. Too cold to go outside? Get 50% off your order on Snarf's mobile app or website. Eat at with promo code SNARFS50. Handcrafted. Oven toasted.
1: Ridiculously addictive.
0: Snarfalicious will be your new philosophy. It's already predicted. Hey, what are you eating over there?
1: It's a katu roll from Hakabaka. What? It's a kati roll from Hakabaka. Chewbacca? No, a kati roll from Hakabaka.
4: Oh. What's that?
1: It's a pan seared flatbread, layered with an egg, filled with fresh meat and toppings, and finished off with one of their four house made chutneys.
4: Wow, that sounds really good.
1: It's like an Indian burrito.
4: But I'm a vegan.
1: Hakabaka has tons of vegetarian and vegan options, like chickpeas or three flavors of an artisan cheese called paneer. They even have rice bowls and salad bowls, if that's how you roll.
4: I'll see you later. I'm going over to Hakabaka Rolls. Come on in to Hakabaka Rolls, located on the east side of the 1237 West Fullerton Building, and try a Cotty roll for yourself. Order for dine-in, carry-out, or delivery. Show your DePaul ID for a $6.99 DePaul combo or free lentil soup with any purchase. Wow, that is good. Hold you. Hakabaka Rolls, bringing Indian street food to your dinner plate.